Please keep your Bibles open there to James 2. Uh, thanks to Faye and the team. So let us through our time of worship together. It's always good to be able to uh, reflect on uh, the goodness of God through song and also through prayer. And uh, now we're going to ask God to be, uh, reveal himself to us in a special way through his word. Father God, this morning as we do open your word together, we've already prayed, Lord, that you yourself would uh, be our teacher, that our hearts, our minds would be open to hear your word so that we might put your word into action. My prayer this morning, Lord, is that uh, your spirit will really uh, move in each of our hearts. And particularly, Lord, I pray for just your anointing this morning as I bring your word to us. I pray, Lord, that uh, the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart will be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We continue on in our series in James on the mature disciple. And uh, we are this morning going to be looking at part two of uh, our uh, series on this particular uh, section, James uh, 2, 14 to 26, A Faith That Does Not Save. So I want to ask you the question this morning, would you say that you are a Christian? If someone was to come up to you in the street today when asked you if you are, would, if you are a Christian, would you be able to say yes to that? And if you could say yes, then what makes you say that? What makes you say that you are indeed a Christian? Is it because you perhaps align yourself with uh, with certain uh, Christian morals and principles? Is it because you perhaps acknowledge the uh, the Christian God? You know, you believe that uh, that God is real, for instance, that God is there. Perhaps you call yourself a Christian because uh, you know you've been, uh, been it's uh, the religion that you've been brought up in in your homes throughout uh, your life. You know you've you've attended Sunday school. You might have attended church for a, for a period of time. Being a Christian is just you know that uh, that faith that you uh, that you align yourself with that you profess. I wonder this morning then would it concern you if I was to say that there are many people in our world today who call themselves Christians. Many many people. But Jesus says in his word that there will come a day when these people who call themselves Christians will be shocked to hear him say, depart from me for I never knew you. This is the emphasis of this passage in James, these verses 14 through to 26 of James chapter 2 because several times in this passage James refers to a faith that is a dead faith. Verse 17 says, So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Again in verse 20, he writes, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And then again in verse 26, he says, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. As we can see, there is a faith that people can claim to have, a verbal faith that people can can, can claim to have, but it is a worthless faith. It is a faith that results in nothing. It produces nothing. It results in nothing with regards to salvation. That is a right relationship with God. There is a, a faith, a useless faith, that does not put us in this right relationship with God. It's a faith that does not save. See, what James is saying in this passage is, you know what, there's, a, there's this false faith and there's a true and genuine faith. I want to show you a couple of slides this morning. 
first one behind me is a, uh, on, the, uh, on your right is uh, what's called a cubic zirconia. And on the left is a real diamond. Now, to the untrained eye, you would not be able to tell them apart. All right, I've put one in black and one in white because that just makes it easier to sort of see which is which. But when you look at it on the outside, it is very, very difficult to, to see the difference, isn't it? What about this? For the ladies, a Louis Vuitton bag. Those of you who have watched that movie Leap Year will know all about Louis Vuitton bags. That's just gone over a whole lot of heads, I know. I understand that. That's all right. On, the, uh, on your right again is the fake bag and on your left is the real bag. But again, when you look... On the, sorry? Yes. Sorry, on the other way around. It's all right. I'm just looking at the te- television screen up here. As you can see, they look very, very similar, don't they? Very, very similar. Very, very hard to tell them apart. And again, the iPhones for you younger people, I know. All right? The real on your left. <laughs> the fake on, my, on your right. It's the same with faith. You know, we can, have, we can go around in this world and, and, and what appears to be, you know, a, a, a faith, you know, that we claim to have can actually not be a real faith at all. It can be a fake faith. So how do we know that what we have is a real faith? Is your faith the real deal this morning? James gives four illustrations in this passage Basically, talking about or describing what faith is and what it isn't, he gives uh, two negative, um, two negative illustrations. In other words, what faith is not, and he gives two positive illustrations: what faith is. And last week we looked at two of these illustrations that focused on one's claim to have faith in God, in, in terms of this Godward relationship of faith, if you like. James pointed out that even though a, a person might have an uh, orthodox beliefs, if you like, um, and when I talk about orthodox, I mean you know, those, those beliefs that are sort of commonly agreed to, okay? A person might, might say that, that they've got orthodox beliefs, but that does not necessarily mean that a person's faith is real. For he says, you know, you believe that God is one, in verse 19 of the passage, you believe that God is one, that was the, taste, that was just the test of Jewish orthodoxy in, in James's day. Believing that God was one. It came from the, the Jewish Shema. Uh, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, the Lord is one. The God is, the, the God, there is the, only one God. The one true God. Sorry, the one true God. Now we know under, as we read through the, uh, the, the, the scriptures, we see that, uh, that not only is God one, but God is also three, Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the God the Holy Spirit. But the Jews understood God as God in this monotheistic way, okay? That he was the only God, the one true God. And so we see, you know, they say, yep, you know what? You say that you believe that God is one. Well, that's great. You believe there is a God. You believe in Jesus. Wonderful. But you know what? Even the, devils, even the demons believe in that. Even the devil believes in that. You read through the Gospels and you see Jesus' encounter with, with these people who were, uh, who were possessed and tormented by evil spirits. And as Jesus encountered them, the spirits would talk to Jesus and say to him, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? In fact, you know, they even refer to Jesus as, as, the, as the Son of the Most High God. So they, 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 they knew who Jesus was. They knew who God was. Yet you wouldn't say that they had a saving faith in, uh, in Jesus Christ. And so James points out that, you know what, just, you know, the fact that you just believe in a, in a God or believe in God, 
You might believe that you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus was a, uh, a wonderful teacher, a rabbi, you know, a very uh, significant religious leader. That's not enough in terms of having a saving faith. In contrast to that, we talked about Abraham and uh, Abraham's faith in God. And uh, we see that in verses 21 to 23 of our passage. It says, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. There was something about Abraham's faith in God which actually put him in a right relationship with God. It was credited to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And that was the fact that his faith was borne out by his obedience to God. God had called Abraham and he said, Abraham, I want, to make, I want you to leave your, your, your family, your, your country of, of, of birth. I want you to go to a place that I will show you. He says, I want you to, to, to follow me and if, as you do that, I will bless you. And I will make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. We read that in, in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Trouble was is that Abraham, as we saw last week, Abraham and his wife Sarai, they were, they were barren. They, did, they weren't able to have children at that stage. And they were getting on in years. And when we get to Genesis chapter 15, there's still no child on the horizon. And Abraham you know, comes to God and says, Well, God, you, know, you said that you're going to make me into a great nation, but, but, but I don't see that being worked out yet. And God says, come with me, Abraham, look up into the night sky, look at all the stars up there in the night sky. And, and Abraham did that, and, and God says, you know, see those stars? He said, your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And, it, and that's where it says that Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's where we get this, uh, this uh, phrase from in our passage this morning. It comes from Genesis chapter 15. And then, of course, Abraham and Sarah had a boy, Isaac. And when Isaac was, uh, was a young boy, God said to, uh, to Abraham, I want you to take Isaac and I want you to sacrifice him to me. Now, for many of us, that kind of just really grates on us, doesn't it? That God would call Abraham to, Isaac, to, to, to sacrifice Isaac, his son. Think, how could God do that? But you see, it was a test. God was testing Abraham to see whether or not his belief, his faith in God was truly real. And so Abraham obeyed God. And he took his son up there, he put him on an altar, and he was about to sacrifice him, and God said, stop. And instead he uh, provided a ram in his place for the sacrifice. But there and then, God's, uh, Abraham's faith was proved genuine because of his obedience to God. His faith was proved by his works. And what we discover is that a genuine, uh, a genuine faith, a real faith, an authentic faith, if you like, in God, a faith that saves is not just a verbal expression, but it is a faith that results in a changed character, changed allegiances, changed motivations and changed behaviour in our lives towards God and towards those around about us. Last week we saw that a person can say they have faith, as we've been saying this morning, but that doesn't necessarily mean they belong to God. 
Please get that this morning. You can say you have faith, but that does not necessarily mean that you belong to God, that you are a friend of God. A person can say that they live a good life, but that, again, does not mean that they necessarily belong to God also. A person can say they have faith and rely then on certain works in order to earn God's favour. Yes, I believe in God and I'm going to do all these things to make sure that I stay in God's good books. To make sure that when it comes to the end of my life, you know, the scales kind of, you know, weigh more in favour of the good things than the bad things. That is a wrong understanding of faith and salvation. A true and genuine faith is one that professes, firstly, belief in Jesus Christ as Saviour. That is a person who acknowledges their own sin and their need for God's forgiveness, which Christ alone is able to provide through his death and resurrection. And then that faith results in a changed life, which is brought about by the Spirit of God in a person's life. That is what a true faith is all about. You see, if a person has truly received God's life-giving, implanted word in their hearts, it will produce in them these acts of righteousness, which James talks about at the end of chapter 1. Acts which are generated, which come as a result of the work of the Spirit of God in a person's life. And these will be the proof that a person is truly saved and belongs to God, that their faith, in fact, is genuine. Now, the Bible makes it clear, folks, that if a person truly loves God in this way, not only will they love God, but they will also love others. The great commandment, Jesus says, okay, he was asked what the greatest commandment was, and he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your Soul, with all your mind and with all your strength, right? And you will love your neighbour as yourself. That summarises all of the commandments, just those two. All of the commandments are summed up in those. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and love your neighbour as yourself. Just let me um, point you to 1 John chapter 4, verse 11 and 12. It says, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, then God abides in us and his love is perfected or made complete in us. Sorry, that's a typo there. In us, by works of the law. No human being will be justified. Sorry, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. What John is saying there is this is that you know, no one's ever seen God, but God becomes real to those around us through his works of righteousness being lived out in our lives towards one another. Okay, God abides in us and his love is made perfect in us through, the, the, you know, through, uh, through these acts of, of righteousness, if you like. No human being will be justified in his sight by works of the law. Okay, so, so faith... Apart from works is a dead faith. However, faith with works, all right, faith, you have to make sure that your faith is um, proved by your works, okay? 
All right? But if you're just relying on works alone, that won't get you through. It will not get you through. And this is, this is the, the, the confusing thing. Let me just take you back there for a moment. And I don't, want to be, I don't want to leave you confused here this morning, okay? Because I had a couple of people sort of ask me last Sunday, you know, what's this whole deal with between faith and works? I just don't get it. It just seems to be, just seems to be uh, as though you're saying the same thing. The Jews believed that you had to have faith in God, but then you had to do these works of righteousness in order to continue to remain God's, in God's favour. Okay, so it was faith plus works equals salvation. But that's not how God works, because no matter what we do, no matter what good things we do, we can never earn God's favour, because we can never ever measure up to God's standards. God is perfect, and none of us are perfect. Okay, God's pass mark when it comes to being a part of his kingdom is 100% pass mark. And none of us can ever do that. None of us can ever live up to that. So we need someone to do that in our place. And that person was Jesus Christ. So therefore, we must put our faith, first of all, in Jesus we must trust him as our saviour, the one who, who is able to pay the penalty for our sins before God. To bear the wrath of God, God's righteous judgment on us for our sins. That's the only way to become, to become a child of God. But then, having done that, Okay, God makes us alive again in our spirits by his Holy Spirit and starts to change us from the inside out. He starts to change our hearts. And as he changes our hearts, he starts to align us more and more with, with his ways. And so those, the ways of God have started to be worked out in our lives, these works of righteousness. And they prove that our faith initially in Christ was a genuine faith was a faith that brought us into a right relationship with God. Does that make it more clear for you folk today? Mm. <laughs> All right. We'll keep moving on. Our faith in God, okay, is, very, is, is, is paramount. But that faith in God is worked out in our lives towards those around about us. And in John chapter in first in first John chapter four and verse twenty, it says this: If anyone says I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. His faith is not real. For he who does not love his brother whom he has who he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. Okay, so what we're seeing here is that God says, you know what? If you love me, if you truly love me, then that love is going to be worked out towards those those people in you know that, that you come in contact with. And this is what James is going to get to in his passage here this morning. Like I said, this genuine faith results in a changed character, changed motivations and changed behaviour. And James uses again two illustrations to point out what a false faith is and what a genuine faith is in relation to how we treat our fellow human beings. The first is negative when he says um, in verses 15 to 17, this is what faith is not. In verse 15 to 17, if you'd like to follow along with me in your, uh, in your Bibles, he says this. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Here we are. We are confronted by a person who is cold and hungry. Not just, you know, just uh, for, a, for a moment, but for, you know, for, for an extended period of time. This is their condition. A person who does not have enough clothes, a person who does not have enough food, in terms of how they live their lives, they are cold and hungry. And James says to his readers, if they respond to this brother or sister by saying, go in peace, be warm and well fed, without helping to meet their needs, then what, the faith that they profess to have is worthless. It means nothing. It results in nothing. Now, there's a couple of ways of understanding what the, this, this person might be saying, okay? In terms of the, uh, the, the original language that, uh, that the New Testament was written in, there's a couple of ways of understanding it. The first is this. The person could be saying, may God clothe you and feed you. In other words, go in peace, may God clothe you and feed you. In other words, you know, go with God, I'll pray for you, and, uh, and just leave it at that. Let's just trust it, your, your situation to God, shall we? We'll trust God for his provision. May God go with you because I'm too busy to. Or, I wish you well. Go feed yourself and clothe yourself. That's the other way. You go feed yourself and clothe yourself. You know, you look cold. You should try and get warm. You look hungry. You should eat a bit more. It's pretty heartless, isn't it? And yet, how many times have we been guilty of that kind of trite response to those around us in need? We can all be guilty of this, folks. Every single one of us. Of seeing a person in need, knowing that we have the means to help, but not. And instead just trotting out these same kind of trite kind of remarks that says, you know what, I'll pray for you. Now, praying praying's wonderful. Charles Spurgeon once said, you know, if you, uh, if you want to uh, um, you know, give a tract to a hungry man, you wrap it in a sandwich. <laughs> we wrap a sandwich in, in the tract or something like that. It's the kind of motivation that led uh, the, uh, the founder of the Salvation Army to begin that movement where he saw the needs of people in the streets of London in desperate need and he wanted to be able to preach the gospel to them. But he knew that until he met their material needs, their hunger, and the fact that they were you know, freezing cold, shivering because they had no home or anything like that, unless he began to meet those needs... He couldn't expect them to listen to the gospel message. And so he combined that works of, of social action with the gospel. And that's what we need to be about, folks. We need to be combining the gospel message of Jesus Christ with these acts of, of kindness and care towards those around about us, towards one another. See, words without actions are useless. Faith without deeds is dead. See, the life of God, if it is truly in us, then we cannot be helped to be moved by the needs of others. 
First John chapter 3, verses 17 to 18 says this, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. If we have the means within us to help, we need to. I want to read to you just a few verses out of Matthew's Gospel this morning from Matthew 25. What I want us to see from this passage is this, is that as we serve those around about us, as we seek to meet the needs of those around about us, it is not just those people whom we are serving, whom we are helping. But in actual fact, we are actually serving the Lord Jesus Christ. You wonder how? Well, let me read to you. Matthew 25, reading from verse 34, speaking about Jesus, says, Then the king will say to those on his right, this is at the, the, uh, the final judgment, Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly, I say to you, As you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. And the contrast is those who didn't, Jesus then condemns them to an eternity out of his presence. Can you see how important it is for us to be serving each other? Because as we do, we serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The positive illustration that James uses, he uses, he, he points to the, the, the woman Rahab. Now what he's going to be pointing out here is that, you know, talking about what a genuine faith is in relation to how we treat others. The example of Rahab comes to us from Joshua chapter 2. You might recount the story. The Israelites had, uh, had come to the, uh, basically to the, um, the, eastern, uh, sorry, the, uh, yeah, the eastern plains of, of Moab, just on the eastern side of the, uh, the Jordan River, ready to cross into the Promised Land. The first big town that they were going to encounter was the town of Jericho. And what they do is they send spies into Jericho to, to, to see you know, just uh, where things are at, to see how, uh, how well uh, fortified it is. And these spies go to the home of Rahab the prostitute. Now, in those days, that wouldn't have been uh, you know, out, of, out of the norm because that would have been where visitors would go and it would be, you know, obviously um, the people in the, uh, those sort of villages would know that, you know that strangers would be coming in and, and visiting these kind, of, uh, these kind of places. And we read in Joshua chapter 2, verses 9 to 11, these words from Rahab when the spies enter her home. She says, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us. I think I might have it up here, actually. There it is. And that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sion and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. 
And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There is Rahab's declaration of faith. She says, I believe, okay, that God is the God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He is the Lord God. How do we know that that was a genuine um, um, declaration of faith by Rahab? Because it was proved by her actions. Because what happened is that the king of Jericho had heard that these spies had come in. These Jewish spies had come into the, uh, into the city. And he sent word to, uh, to uh, Rahab and says, You know what? We know these spies have come into your house. Where are they? Now, at that point, Rahab's life was in the balance. If the king had found out that she had been harbouring these spies, then she and her family would have been taken out and killed in the public square right there and then. But Rahab said to the king, Oh, they've left already and they've gone, they've gone that way. They've gone, they've gone out of the city. But in the mean, all the while, she's got them hit up on her roof under the hay. And when you know, it's all clear, she gives them, you know, she says to them, you know, go and, uh, and, uh, and make sure, though, that when you come back, that you take care of me and my family. And, uh, and, she, and that's exactly what the people do. God looks after her. See, it was her actions in hiding the Jewish, the Jewish spies that proved that her faith was real. First John chapter 3, verse 16 says this, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for others. Rahab was prepared to lay down her life to do the right thing, to look after these people because they, she knew that they were the people of God. You see, folks, a genuine faith in our lives will be a faith that, that, that actually results in us being prepared to make costly sacrifices for those around about us. Sadly, today, our world just continues to emphasise the fact that life is all about us, that life is all about you and me, to look out for number one. And slowly that has been infiltrating itself into churches and into the lives of believers today where, we, where we, we, we so often see Christians who are just really about just getting what they can for themselves and forgetting about the needs of others. God says that's not what a genuine faith is. A genuine faith proves itself by costly acts of sacrificial love to those around about us. Now, I understand that you know, one of the many challenges we face today as believers are the overwhelming needs that we see in our world today, don't we? Aren't you just overwhelmed by the need that we see around us? And it comes to us, doesn't it, through our television screens, through our, through our social media, through our church newsletters and announcements, through emails, through letters in the, in the letterbox. The needs are constantly flooding in. And that's just about, you know, the, the, about our Christian brothers and sisters around the world. But that's not even just to mention, you know, the other people in our world who we're also meant to have compassion and kindness towards. The needs can, can so often far outweigh our individual abilities to help. And so we wonder, well, what difference can I make? As one person, what difference can I make? 
Sometimes it can seem so overwhelming that we do nothing. You might have heard the illustration before of a man who was walking along the beach and as he's walking along the beach at low tide, there's all these starfish all along the shore. Thousands of them. Thousands. And he looks at these starfish all kind of just, you know, sort of starting to bake there in the sun and he thinks, you know, what difference can I make? He reaches down, he picks up one, he tosses it back into the water. He said, well, it made a difference to that one. And that one. And that one. Sure, we can't meet the needs of all, but we might be able to meet the needs of a few. And if each and every one of us are seeking to be God's person, trying to meet the needs of the few, you multiply that by the number of people in this church, in fact, the number of people in God's church worldwide, that's a lot of good in the world, isn't it? It's a lot of good in the world. On a larger scale, we as individuals and churches, we need to put pressure on governments and organisations that have greater resources at their, at, at, their, uh, you know, at their beck and call to help. We see all through the scriptures that God has such a heart for justice and mercy in our world today. And we need to be people who are speaking out for justice and mercy in our world. We need to be putting pressure on our governments particularly in light of perhaps our own government and, and, and its, own, its cutbacks in foreign aid. When we, a country that is so rich and so prosperous, we're not even prepared to help those poorer nations around about us. Instead, we, instead of being more generous, we, we, we try to keep it all for ourselves. We need to be saying to our government, no, that's wrong. We need to be a blessing to those around about us. We need to be speaking out on, on issues of, of like treatment of refugees in our country. There's an article uh, that um, I can send you if you're interested about uh, a, a person who went into the, um, the uh, um, Nauru detention centre and what they discovered there in terms of the conditions and what those, uh, what those people are being subjected to in those places. It will horrify you. It will absolutely horrify you. And yet our, our parliament, when the budget came out, passed legislation to say that anyone, any charity worker or any non-government organisation person going into those places when they come back are forbidden to talk about their experiences because they will be thrown in jail for two years. That's what our parliament passed back in July this year. We need to be speaking out on social issues You know, we, as, a, as, as, a, as churches, we speak out a lot about the immoral issues in, in our society, same-sex marriage and things like that. But I think if we were just as vocal about some of these other issues, then maybe our society and our governments would might start to take a little bit more notice of us in terms of these other areas. Now, I don't often get up here in the pulpit and start speaking, you know, the, you know pushing a, a social kind of agenda in this regard. But it is so true, folks. Because we will be held responsible for not speaking up as Christians. By not helping our brothers and sisters and those around us in need, in their time of need. At the commencement of his ministry, Jesus said this. 
He got up in the synagogue in Nazareth and he read these words from from Isaiah chapter 61. He said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And then he sat down. That was Jesus' mission in this world. And folks, that is our mission. Proclamation of the gospel. The heralding of the kingdom of God that it is at hand in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the only means of a person being saved and being part of God's kingdom. But it is also recognising that the principles of the kingdom of God, need to, we need to be vocal, you know, vocal in, in, in proclaiming those as well. Proclaiming the heart of God, the passion of God, the love of God, the mercy of God in our world today. I want to finish to you by reading this quote that I found this week. It says, The life of faith then is the life that respects the glory of Jesus Christ. For in his obedience to God and his concern for needy sinners, you and I, he emptied himself. He humbled himself even under death, death on a cross. It is a life of obedience in particular to what James refers to as the royal law, love our neighbour as ourselves. Our obedience to the word of God is seen in our concern for the needs of mankind. The life of faith is more than a private, long-past transaction of the, of the mouth and the heart with God. It is the life of active, daily consecration, seen in the obedience which holds nothing back from God and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. Let me read that last sentence to you again. The life of faith is the life of active daily consecration seen in the obedience which holds nothing back from God and the concern which holds nothing back from human need. That is what a true and genuine faith is. It's this that is the living faith that truly saves. Is that the kind of faith present in you this morning let's pray Father God I want to thank you this morning for this timely reminder from your word about what a true and genuine faith is and Lord we recognise that first and foremost it is a trust a belief in Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour as the Son of God who came to give his life as a ransom for many, to die in our place so that our sins could be forgiven. But it is also, Lord, a life that having been saved from our sins and having the life-giving, implanted spirit and word of God placed within us, it is a life that then uh, produces works of righteousness brought about by the spirit of God in our lives that our faith is justified by our works. It is proved by our works. Help us to be believers who indeed are prepared to hold nothing back whatsoever in obedience to you today. 
And may we be people who are prepared and have such a concern for others that we will not hold anything back from human need around us as we are able to meet it. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.